I thought that only happened when Ray stood up here, so. <clears throat> well, good morning. My name is Dave Davis. I am one of the pastors here at Parkview, and it is my privilege this morning. In fact, I am really excited to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you brought your Bible or your phone or your iPad or however you uh, read the Bible, I'm going to ask you to open to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the chairs in front of you, and I'd encourage you to pick one up. I think it's really important that when we study a passage of Scripture like this, that we hold it in our hands and that we interact with it. So grab a Bible and open to chapter Matthew chapter 5. We're in a teaching series called Blessed, and we're taking a deep dive into the very opening section of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon given by Jesus at the very early stages of his public ministry. And we are focusing on this opening section, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. And these first 12 verses have become known as the Beatitudes, because each statement begins with the word blessed. And blessed here has the meaning of happy or fortunate. And I think we need to view the Beatitudes through both lenses. One is about emotional well-being, and the other is about a trajectory or a plan. And the bottom line here is that Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, wanted people to understand that to know me, to understand God, to wrap your mind around the kingdom of God, you need to first understand a few things. And so he starts in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Six blessed statements. They build on each other. They're progressive, like a ladder. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, then these are the things that your life needs to be about. This is, in its essence... Discipleship. It is a pattern that Jesus is establishing for being a more fully engaged disciple of Jesus. And if the Beatitudes are like a ladder, each step drawing us closer and closer to Jesus, then verse 9 is next level discipleship. Look with me at verse 9. Jesus is saying, Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Peacemakers. What an interesting concept to throw in here. I, I don't know what images conjure up in your own mind around this idea of peacemaking. Maybe if you grew up in the, in the 70s, it's about long-haired, weed-smoking, make-love-not-war types of people. Or maybe you grew up in a home filled with rage and strife and conflict. And for you, peacemaking takes on a different connotation. And for some of us, when we think about peace, we think about walking on eggshells. And I think even in today's culture, the idea of peace has become synonymous with the word tolerance. And this idea of tolerance comes with it the mantra of the day, which is to live in harmony with everyone. We're no longer allowed to disagree in love, but that we need to be in agreement with everything. 
And we've lost the ability to share our own opinions in love and just simply agree to disagree when our ideas don't match up. And as the lone male in a house full of strong, beautiful women, peacemaking takes on a whole new meaning for me. For me, it's about running into the basement and pretending not to hear anything that's happening upstairs. (laughs) And if you are a parent or an employee or an employer or a friend or a colleague, you understand that peacemaking has its challenges and is at times an art form. I mean, the reality of this world is we all want peace. I mean, yeah, there are people in the world who don't want peace. But as a general rule, we all want peace. We want it on a global scale, and we want it on a personal level. And Jesus is taking this desire to a whole new level. Notice what he doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say, blessed blessed are the peace lovers. He doesn't say, blessed are the peace wishers. He doesn't say, blessed are the peace thinkers or the peacekeepers. Blessed are, favor upon favor will be given to the peacemaker, for they will be called the child of God. Now, to fully understand the ramifications of what Jesus is saying, you have to step into the cultural story of the day. The Hebrew people, the Jews, were under Roman occupation. The Romans were controlling the Hebrew people and making their life very, very difficult. Jesus is beginning to be seen and potentially rumored to be the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah, the person that the Hebrew people have been waiting for for a very long time. You see, they wanted a Messiah who was going to overturn and destroy their Roman occupiers. They were looking for a militaristic Messiah. And on every front, people were looking to be rescued, to be set free. And this is the context in which Jesus sits down on the side of a mountain and unpacks a very powerful sermon. And this is the context in which he says, be makers of peace. But this, for Jesus, was more than just pushing against expectations of the Hebrew people. For Jesus, this was much bigger. With each blessed statement, Jesus is ratcheting up discipleship. He starts out, blessed are the poor in spirit, then to those who mourn, then the meek, then to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, then the merciful, then the pure in heart, and now blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is step by step taking us through the evolution of discipleship that will ultimately lead to a life sold out for him. Now let me pause here just for a second because I think in our day and age, we often link the idea of peacemaking to social justice. We think of peacemaking solely in terms of ending war, providing water, pushing back on human trafficking. And don't get me wrong, it is absolutely about those things but we must not remove it from the discipleship process. To think of peacemaking as something outside of being made into a disciple of Jesus is to miss the very heart of what Jesus is talking about here in the Beatitudes. So it's 
as much about an action or a proactive approach towards life as it is about drawing ourselves closer to who it is that God designed us to be. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a peacemaker in our day and age? For you and I sitting in the western suburbs of Chicago, what does it mean to make peace? And in my preparation for this message today, I came across an author by the name of K.T. Kendall. And he helped me wrap this notion of what peacemaking looks like in today's culture by creating four scenarios in which peacemaking likely occurs in all of our lives. The first scenario is this. Someone wronged you. Someone has wronged you. What do you do? How do you respond when someone offends you or wrongs you, cuts you off in traffic, doesn't pay you what they owe you, says something that is offensive to you? What do you do? Well, I believe the message of Jesus here is to make peace, to proactively, actively move towards reconciliation. To be called a son and daughter of God means that we move towards the line of reconciliation when somebody wrongs us. The, the second scenario is you wronged someone. Maybe you hurt someone or you've offended someone and they came to you with their hurt. They had the courage and the guts to come to you and say, you know what, when you said that, when you did that, it hurt me. It wounded me. How do you respond in that moment? Do you respond by saying, no, that's not my fault. That's all you. Do you push back on that? Think about the relationships in your life. Think about the times that someone has come to you and said, that really hurt me. Do you shift blame onto them or do you own up to that and walk towards the line of reconciliation? Do you proactively engage in the work of making peace? How do you respond? The third scenario is two parties are in conflict. Two people, two friends, two organizations, two countries, two people groups, two religions in conflict with each other. And you as a third party, as a friend on the outside of that, have an opportunity to step in and bring peace, to engage. But how do we respond in those moments when siblings are fighting, when children are fighting, when your neighbors are fighting, when your coworkers are fighting? Do you walk around? Do you put your head in the sand? Or do you proactively bring the peace of God to that situation and bring reconciliation in that moment? And the fourth scenario is when we engage with people who are different. Arguably, this is the most unique opportunity we have to make peace. This is what happens when as disciples of Christ, we recognize that we are here not to be advocates for social justice per se or to be political activists, but instead we're here to embody the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see the world as Jesus saw it, broken, lost, and hurting. We see people for their struggle and not their offense. We engage with the world from a place of redemption and not a place of persecution. What does it look like to sit and listen and learn from people who are different than you. What would it be like if we saw everyone we come in contact with as an opportunity to understand versus an opportunity to convince?
we bring peace, we bring reconciliation, and we bring the grace and mercy of God wherever we go. So how we live this out in our daily life is critically important. Every one of us bumps up against those scenarios, if not daily, likely weekly. And when we get these scenarios in our lives, what do we do? How do we respond to the call of the Beatitudes to make peace? In my life, I have met many, many people who embody this notion of making peace who have said, I will step to the line of reconciliation and I will do something. And they're inspiring to me. And so I want to share some of those stories with you this morning. I want to introduce you to three incredible peacemakers. The first one is a guy by the name of Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy is the co-founder of an incredible organization called Preemptive Love Coalition. Preemptive Love is a development organization based in Iraq. And God, at the middle of, at the height of the Iraqi war, God led Jeremy, his wife, and their two small children to leave their home in Texas, pack their stuff, and move to Iraq. And while sitting in a cafe in Iraq, an elderly man came up to him and said, can you help my daughter? You're an American you can help my child. And this confused Jeremy, and he didn't know what this guy was talking about, and as he pursued the conversation, what he discovered was, as a result of the war, children at an exceedingly high rate were being born with congenital heart defects. And this man's daughter was dying. And he said to Jeremy, you're an American, you can help. Now Jeremy was there to do what all, not all, what many Western missionaries are here to do plant churches and lead people to Jesus. But what Jeremy ended up doing was taking this man's daughter and pairing her with a Western cardiovascular surgeon who healed his daughter's heart. And now, all these years later, they have done hundreds of these surgeries. And the organization has grown to be about microfinance and about education reform. And in the very backyard of ISIS, they are meeting day-to-day -day needs of millions of people who are refugees in that country. Jeremy, because of his relationship with Christ and his desire to be known as a child of God, is making peace in an environment where people would rather him be dead. Jeremy has become a friend, and we've invited him to come here to speak in July. He, and his, he will be here to be a part of our Influence series in July, and I am so excited for you to meet him and to hear his story out of his own mouth. But let me introduce you to another peacemaker. As Ray mentioned a moment ago, he and I and nine other Parkview people recently traveled uh, to Israel-Palestine. We traveled there to see the religious sites and to walk where Jesus walked, but we also went there to take an incredibly deep and intense dive into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We all came there with certain perspectives on the conflict, and our minds were adjusted and changed as a result. And along the way, we met lots and lots of great peacemakers. We met, we met, we met Christian leaders, we met Jewish leaders, we met Muslim leaders, we met Arab leaders, all in the business of making peace. 
We met a grandmother who uses her cell phone to build bridges to those who live in Gaza. We saw people doing extraordinary things, but maybe the most extraordinary conversation we had was with a guy by the name of Daoud Nasir. Daoud lives on a 100-acre farm just outside of Bethlehem, squarely in the West Bank. And as our bus approached the farm, we were stopped by a cement barricade. We had to walk around the barricade and hike about a quarter of a mile up this hill to the top of a hill where this farm is. That concrete barricade is there, put there by the Israeli government to cut Daoud and his family off from doing anything on that land. In fact, the family has owned this land since 1916. It's squarely in the West Bank and according to international law belongs to the Nassar family and it's not to be a part of Israel. But today it is surrounded by more than 50,000 Israeli settlers living on similar land that's been confiscated by other, from other Palestinian families. Nasir's family are Christian Palestinians. They love Jesus and they love God and they're trying to serve him with this piece of land. But because of the dynamics in the land, the Israeli government is constantly at their door trying to take this land away from them. And they have said, you cannot develop the land. You cannot have any running water. You cannot have any electricity. So Daoud and his family runs this farm off of collected rainwater and solar power. And every summer, children from Jewish communities and Palestinian communities and Muslim communities show up at this camp to experience what it looks like to live in peace, even for a brief moment during the summer. And as we walked up to this piece of land, there is a sign at the gate of this beautiful farm. And it says in three different languages, we refuse to be enemies. And this captures their desire to live in peace together, share the land and make peace. Daoud is a hero in a very difficult situation. Now, as an aside, I want to invite you tonight to come back. And I know it's very exciting to consider coming to a meeting to vote on a constitution, but if that's not a draw for you, <laughs> if that's not enough of a draw for you, you need to come and hear the stories that these other people are going to tell you about what they saw and what they experienced in the Holy Land. I want to introduce you to one last peacemaker. It's actually an organization called New Name. And it's run by a beautiful woman by the name of Ann Polnicek. A New Name started at another church. Uh, their founders moved. And so New Name came to Parkview a long time ago. It came as just a group of women who spent time in prayer and then went out and visited with women who were in the sex industry here in DuPage County. They visited strip clubs and massage parlors and they took gifts to these women and they befriended them. And what started out as a small group of women around one single route has grown to 50 different chapters, 12 different chapters, visiting 50 different sites every week. 
They've created call centers that make calls to more than 100 women advertising online. They've developed a program, a curriculum, and they teach it in uh, the juvenile detention center to young girls. They host weekly support groups and Bible studies for women who have left the industry and for women who are still in it. They have begun to build a bridge to a very dark world. They are proactively engaging in the work of making peace. And as a result, women are finding their way to Jesus. Parkview has partnered with this incredible ministry since the beginning. And they are launching something very new. We are helping them launch something very new called the Safer Place. The Safer Place is, a, is going to be a safe house in which when, when, a, when a girl says, I want out and I want out right now, New Name will go and get her and bring her to this safe house. In addition to that, Parkview, right here in this building, is establishing a call center for New Name so they can make more and more calls as a way of evangelizing, as a way of building a bridge as a way of building peace. And so as another aside, if you're a woman here today and you're hearing me say this, talk about new name, and you're thinking to yourself, I want to engage with that way of making peace, just take the bulletin and that little welcome card and just give us your name and write new name on there. And someone this week will reach out to you. But here's the deal. These three people, these three organizations are normal people like you and me who have taken this particular passage of scripture very, very seriously. And I am in fact broken by these people. I'm inspired by these people. Each of these peacemakers and the dozens of others I have either met or read about over the years, they are doing unbelievable things to build bridges and to make peace. But that is something that you and I can do and should do every single day. And there's something that all three, all of those people have in common and all peacemakers have in common. It's three things. They all have imagination. John Paul Lederach, he's a director of the Kroc Institute for Peace in, at Notre Dame. And he wrote a book called Moral Imagination. And he defines this idea of imagination in this way. To imagine the capacity to imagine ourselves in a web of relationships that even include our enemies. If we are going to take discipleship journey all the way, if we are going to be peacemakers in our world, we must move away from the us versus them mentality and run towards the notion of both and. We must use our imagination. We must be creative in crossing the line of reconciliation because God's redemptive plan from the beginning of time was to use people like you and I to build peace and ultimately to reconcile the world to himself. But oftentimes, we take sides. We build up walls. We make it harder to get to the other side. It's really, really hard to make peace when you're surrounded by a wall. Scripture is full of statements calling his people to break down walls and to love each other. And there's a second characteristic of peacemakers, and that is that they also walk humbly. All three of the people that I've just described to you are some of the most humble people I've ever met. I tell you their stories, but they don't tell their stories very often. They just do. First Timothy says in chapter two, verses five and six, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. 
one God and one mediator. Do you see what's missing in that picture? You and me. It's not our job to mediate. It's our job to build peace so that the Holy Spirit can bring about reconciliation. There's a fantastic Old Testament story found in the book of Joshua, chapter 5. Joshua has finally made it to the promised land, the place in which God said, this is where I want my people to go. And he's there. And he's feeling pretty good about himself. And Joshua makes the mistake of assuming that he's there because God was biased for him. And look at what it says in chapter 5. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Classic question, right? Are you on my side or are you on their side? And the guy with the sword says, neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then, this is the key, then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does the Lord leave for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did exactly that. He stood and then he fell and then he took off his shoes out of an act of humility. Every peacemaker I have ever met or read about has this skill to be humble, to walk humbly with their God. But there's one last thing. There's one last thing that every peacemaker has to possess. That they have to understand the ultimate plan. That God's plan is to redeem the world, the entire world, and that's the only thing that's going to keep you moving. Every peacemaker needs to have hope. Hope in the understanding that God wins and the understanding that it is about the personal redemption of every person on earth to Jesus. Romans chapter 15 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 19 says, as he approached Jerusalem, Jesus coming down the mountain, approaching Jerusalem, and he sees the city, he wept over it. And then he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day, that's hope, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. You see, without hope, we will give up on peacemaking. It's too hard. It requires a continual and constant forward motion. We have to keep talking. We have to keep having coffee together. We have to keep building relationships. And without hope, the days will come where you will not want to continue unless you understand that there is hope. So wherever these scenarios, wherever this idea of peacemaking intersects your life right now, whether it's in your own home or whether it's in your place of employment, whether you're a boss or an employee, whether you're a student, whether you're a mom, a dad, a child, wherever this engagement is happening of peace, wherever peace is required, have imagination. Walk humbly and remember the hope, the transformative hope and power of God. You see, this whole notion of peacemaking is about discipleship. 
It's about being transformed by the power of God's love to the point where we can see our enemy as a person made in the image of Christ and for whom Christ died. This kind of transformation doesn't come naturally. It takes work. It's discipleship and it takes work. It comes through prayer and quiet reflection and confession and a deep study of the ways and words of scripture. Peacemaking requires you and I to be broken and rebuilt in the image of God. And so this morning I challenge you to look deep into your own life and find those places where there is tension. Find those places where you need to actively engage in the work of making peace. Father, we do come before you this morning humbly, humbly asking for your strength and your wisdom and your guidance. That we as followers of you would be filled with your spirit in such a way that we would see the world as you see it and we'd respond accordingly. Father, I pray for the folks in this room who right now can identify a place of conflict. There's a broken relationship. There's a difficult circumstance. Trust has been violated. Will you give us the courage to step forward to make peace? We're so grateful that when we do, your promise rings true that we will be known by you as your children, loved, valued, cared for. Will you do that for us? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. There's truth and power in peacemaking. There are conflicts all over the world resulting in hundreds of thousands of deaths, millions of refugees. And you may think to yourself, I don't have a role, I don't have a part in that. But every day you're in a place where you can build a bridge of peace so that the work Jesus did on the cross can ring true for someone else. Will you take that challenge this week? Let's stand and pray as we wrap up. Father, as your church leaves the building today, we ask God that you would encourage us that this reminder of communion would serve as a motivation, that we would walk out of here having an imagination a humble walk and a sense of hope. Will you give us the courage to live a life marked by those three things? We promise to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise because it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.